right. Good morning, everybody. Hello, mother. Um, today I'll be reading Mark 15, verses 33 to 46. Hear the word of the Lord. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with this loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this, was, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from, from a distance, among who were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, thank you, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph brought a linen shroud and, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. Am I actually praying for Pastor Kevin? You can pray for me. Okay, cool. Thanks, so. All right. We thank you for Pastor Kevin. We ask you, as Pastor Kevin preaches to us, that we would learn and seek the Lord's face. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. If, you're, if you're joining us today uh, for the first time or if you haven't been here the past few weeks, um, we are, we're doing a series on Christian hope. And the way we're getting at it is by looking at the story of Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus himself is our hope. And so we're looking at the story of Jesus. It's his story that makes the Christian story ultimately a hopeful one, but we're doing it in reverse. And so we, we started by looking at his return, and then we've looked at his ascension. Last week, we looked at his resurrection. Today, we're looking at his death. And see, I told you it would be awkward because here it is, the beginning of Advent, and we're talking about Holy Week themes, and we, and, and we will again next week, I think. But then it will start to feel a little more like Advent as we near the end of this series. Um, in any case, the Christian tradition has long pointed out that you can move away from hope in two different directions. Two different directions. One way is to move toward despair. 
And, and that's probably how we most often think about the basic options in front of us as a kind of continuum uh, with, with hope on one side and despair on the other side. And so a move away from hope would always be a move toward despair. And that, and that spectrum between hope and despair is probably pretty familiar to most of us. But the actual situation is more complicated. Yes, you can move away from hope toward despair, but you can also move away from hope in the other direction toward what the tradition has called presumption, uh, toward a kind of triumphal certainty that just has no need for hope. Uh, some of you might recall that I have a long-standing arm wrestling competition with my brother David. We don't see each other very often, uh, usually only once or twice a year, but whenever we do, at some point we have to throw down. And when we faced each other a couple of weeks ago at Thanksgiving, uh, I wasn't hopeful. I wasn't hopeful. I was presumptuous. Uh, you see, I, I, di I didn't need hope because I just knew I was going to win. Now, my, my younger brother is younger than I am. He's, he's way stronger than I am. He's probably a little smarter than I am. And so you might wonder, Kevin, why were you so um, overly confident in your ability to, to beat him? Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, for one, I have the older brother advantage, so I'm just kind of in his head, you know, all the time. <laughs> all the time. I'm, I'm his older brother. And then, and then add to that, I watched about 100 videos on YouTube about <laughs> arm wrestling strategy. And so I, I didn't need to be hopeful. I knew I was going to win, and when I did, I did. Um, I, I do, by the way, I do all of this for Libby, uh, who's, <laughs> I do all of this for Libby, whose love language is feats of strength. <laughs> so you can, you can picture in your mind uh, a different spectrum, not with hope on one side and despair on the other, but with, with despair on one side and presumption on the other, and then maybe hope you know, somewhere in the middle. In other words, hopelessness can take different forms, and two of the most basic forms it takes are despair and presumption. What the church has long taught uh, is that um, only hope is really in tune with reality, because only hope fits our status as people who are on the way, uh, our status as pilgrims on a journey, people who are always living between the already and the not yet of God's inbreaking kingdom. Despair and presumption are both out of touch with reality. How so? Well, despair is out of touch with reality because of what we looked at last week. Uh, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And so uh, the resurrection gives us reason to hope even when all we can see is just a valley of dry bones, right? There's always reason to hope because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So don't despair, but presumption is also out of touch with reality. Why? Because Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. So the Christian life is a life that includes death. It includes all kinds of little deaths to self as we follow Jesus on the way, and then it also includes our actual deaths when our lives here come to an end. And most importantly, uh, the Christian life includes the death of Jesus. It includes the death of God as Jesus. And so all of this means that Christian hope is humble hope. It's humble hope. Uh, it's not despairing, but it's also not presumptuous. It's confident, but it's not uh, full of triumphant certainty. It's humble. Someone asked 
Someone once asked uh, Leslie Newbigin, are you an optimist, are you a pessimist? And he said, oh, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. See, there it is. That's humble hope. Um, Jesus Christ is risen. So, so uh, I, I'm not a pessimist, but he's risen from the dead. He's risen from the dead, so I'm not an optimist. Neither. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Um, Christian hope is humble hope. Now, what does that mean? What does it look like? What does humble hope look like? Our passage shows us, it shows us that humble hope cries. Humble hope cries. And it shows us that humble hope dies. And it shows us that humble hope waits. Okay? So first, we see that humble hope cries. Uh, you know, it would, it would be a different story if, if Mark portrayed Jesus on the cross laughing whistling, cracking jokes about the impotence of evil, celebrating the certainty of his resurrection. Jesus isn't doing any of that. What do we get? We get Jesus crying. Verse 34, Jesus cried with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And that's what humble hope does. It cries. Um, I've also, I, Bob was thinking a lot about, um, so, so as, for those of you who are visiting or haven't been with us, we're having these hope talks during the week. And on Tuesday, Sabrina Chan um, shared with us and talked about lament. And I've been thinking a lot about what she shared. She said that hope and lament go together. She gave us this image of hope and lament walking hand in hand. Uh, and she said that um, without lament, um, that hope is, like, it's superficial, and it's false, and it's hollow. Uh, without, without lament, hope can so easily drift into a kind of presumptuous optimism. But as he's dying, Jesus models for us humble hope, a hope that has its eyes, like, wide open to the tragedy of the present moment. Uh, in his mind and heart, he's not rushing ahead to the glories of resurrection and new creation. I mean, he might not even be able to do that. How could anyone on a cross do that? Instead, he's just fully alive to the reality of feeling forsaken by God. He's fully alive to his physical pain and to his hunger and to his thirst, and he is uh, crying out in neediness. See, there's not a whiff of optimism here. The, the cries might even sound like despair, but what separates lament from despair for Jesus and for us is that lament always stays engaged with God. And on Tuesday, Sabrina talked about the story of the rich young ruler. And, was, and, and you remember that story. He was asked by Jesus to surrender his wealth, and, and, and maybe in that request is a request to surrender his life in order to follow Jesus, in order to have real life. So, so the guy comes to Jesus and he wants real life and Jesus says, okay, surrender your wealth and turn away from like everything you've been looking to for your security and for your identity. Jesus says, like, if you want real life, you've got to die. If, if you want real life, you've got to die. And, and what does the rich young ruler do? He, ruler? Rich young ruler, what did I say? Ruler. The rich young ruler, he, um, he disengages. You remember that? He just walks away. And he walks away sad. And that's a, that's a great image of despair. That's what despair does. 
And Sabrina on Tuesday wondered what would have happened if he had just stayed engaged with Jesus. Maybe acknowledged how difficult what Jesus was asking of him felt. Maybe asked Jesus to help him with surrendering. See, maybe that would have moved him from despair to lament. Maybe that would have been his first step toward a humble hope. So often my tendency, and I, and I wonder if it's yours too, like when you feel that God has closed himself off to you, uh, is, is to return the favor and to close yourself off to God. Like God has hidden himself from us. God feels far away and distant, and so we'll hide ourselves from him. But see, the invitation of humble hope isn't to disengage like that, but instead to stay engaged and to practice lament, to practice it. I think it, it is something to practice. Like, I mean, you kind of, you, you could feel the awkwardness when we tried it earlier together. It just, ah, you got you to gotta get used to expressing your complaint, expressing your discontent. To, you have to get good at crying. Uh, Spurgeon said, our God is not the God of the hills only, but of the valleys also. He is God of both sea and land. He heard Jonah when the disobedient prophet was at the bottom of the mountains and the earth with her bars seem to close about him forever. He says, wherever you are, you can cry out to God. Wherever you lie sick, you can cry out to God. There is no place to which you can be banished where God is not near, and there is no time of day or night when his throne is inaccessible. What a gift. I mean, you always have access to the throne of grace, and you can cry out to God, whatever your circumstance, humble hope, is hope that cries. Um, maybe you don't feel like you have the words to pray, and, and see, that's okay. You can groan, and you can moan. Um, and if you do want words, Scripture has words ready for you. Sabrina talked about the Psalms, and the church has always recognized the Psalms as kind of um, a, as a training ground for lamentation. The Psalms are full of language that can help us stay in God stay engaged with God, even in the face of death. Uh, they teach us how to cry and to lament and to register our complaints. And, and you can let those words become yours. Um, you realize that that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. He doesn't feel the need to make up his own lament. Um, he has so saturated himself in the Psalms that the lament that comes to his lips is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm goes on, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. You can make those words yours. Humble hope cries. Uh, second, humble hope, it dies. It dies. Um, Jesus cried and breathed his last. And, and the way that Mark tells it leaves no... Uh, no room, um, no doubt that Jesus was really dead. I mean, he died, and according to the, to the story, he died, like, surprisingly quickly. He died sooner than anyone expected, and then his corpse was wrapped up, and it was placed in a tomb, and then we're told that a stone was rolled over the entrance of the tomb, and so all of these little details are just, like, hammering home the finality of it. Death means death. Death means death. Um, death is a part of Jesus' story, and family, it will be a part of your story, and it will be a part of mine. 
And, and remember, death is supposed to be a part of our Christian lives now um, in more ways than one. I mean, yes, at the end, when we, like Jesus, breathe our last, but also right here and right now, the Christian life is meant to be a life characterized by dying, by death. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, what? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we want to sanitize that, but it is an invitation to die is an invitation to death. Criminals sentenced by death by crucifixion would carry the beam of their cross to the place of their execution. And so Jesus is saying, like, I'm going to a cross, and if you want to follow me, that's where you're going to. I'm going to die, Jesus says, and so following me means that you're going to die. Now, the end goal is not death, right? Jesus talks all the time about offering abundant life, real life, true life, um, it's, it's the kind of life that Jesus was offering to the rich young ruler. But as with everything else in God's kingdom, like the way there is just completely reversed and it's upside down and it's inside out. Um, if you want to follow Jesus, who is himself true life, deny yourself and take up your cross. If you want to really live, you've got to die, Jesus says. Now the Christian hope is that True life is on the other side of each of the little deaths to self that Jesus invites us to now, and that it's on the other side of our final deaths when we, re when we return to the dust. But do you see that that doesn't make death any less death? It doesn't make death any less death. Death is still death. And so trusting Jesus with all of this, trusting Jesus with those little deaths and our final death, it's really hard. It's really hard. It's hard for all kinds of reasons. Um, usually we don't like to think about death. John Calvin, writing when death was much more uh, in people's faces than it is now, he, he says this, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life, but the moment we turn away from the sight, excuse me, but the moment we turn away uh, from the sight, the thought of our own per, uh, perpetuity remains fixed in our minds. Shall I read that again without stumbling over the words? I'll try, I'll try my best. Uh, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. We go about our lives just assuming we're going to live forever. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life. Oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to go that way eventually. But the moment we turn away from the sight, the sight of the dead body, the thought of our own perpetuity remains fixed in our minds. We go right back to thinking we're just going to endure forever and ever. We just assume that hope is for the living and so we do our best to shut death out of our minds and we struggle to come to terms with the inevitability of our deaths and we think maybe there is a way after all to live without dying. There's a long Christian tradition uh, that stresses the importance of preparing to die well. Preparing to die well. And part of that is like daily practicing little deaths to self, like getting used to um, denying yourself, to turning away from yourself, to dying in that way. Um, but part of it is also medita meditating on your own final death. Jonathan Edwards, for example, he resolved to think much on all occasions of his own dying 
and of the common circumstances which attend death. You think, ah, oh, this guy needs to chill out. But, but to, think, to think often on all occasions of his own dying. I mean, that just basically means you're always thinking about your own dying. And that's what all occasions mean. It just means always. Always think about your own dying and about the circumstances that will attend death. Um, and I, I actually like that. I, I, I think it's good to get in touch with your inner Kohelet, right? Like, just to get, to get used to thinking about your mortality, to think about the fact that you are going to go into the earth and return to dust. Um, but... Let's say, that you, let's say that you do all of that and you do all the practicing and, and you, you practice preparing yourself to die well through little deaths to self and also uh, through all of this meditating on your own death. Well, the reality is that even if you prepare well, um, you just don't have all that much say about how you're going to die in the end. And, and add to that the fact that death, when we do see it and experience it, is, is so often senseless and tragic and just extremely sad. And like... We have so many reasons just to kind of doubt, to, to struggle with trusting Jesus with all of these little deaths and with our final death in the end. Like when Jesus was talking to that rich young ruler, he said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I mean, it's an invitation for the rich young ruler to do what we sang about, right? To really take all of his ambitions, hopes, and plans, to take them to Jesus and to surrender them. To say, like, I am no longer going to take ultimate responsibility for my life. Uh, I'm, I'm going to trust you, Jesus, for, for my, my identity and my security and my satisfaction and my joy and all of it. It's an invitation to die to all of the false hopes that that we looked at in, in pretty rich detail when we went through Ecclesiastes, to let those false hopes die. It's an invitation to turn away from presumption and optimism and to embrace humble hope, uh, to give up the kind of triumphal certainty that so often comes with, with wealth and power and privilege and to, to embrace just a humble hope that is content to go with Jesus and to go with Jesus wherever he goes, to follow Jesus on the way. It's an invitation to a hope that can be small and to a hope that can die. Um, I love that Sabrina brought up the rich young ruler in relation to hope. Um, I wonder what happened to that guy. Like his interaction with Jesus, you remember, he, it gets the disciples talking about like the possibility of real life for anyone. They're thinking, gosh, if this guy can't have it, like who can have it? Who can have it? And, and Jesus says, do you remember what he says? He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God because all things are possible with God. Maybe even humble hope. Maybe even death. Like maybe real life in all of that. And so I wonder about the rich young ruler and I wonder about you and I wonder about me. And I wonder, did he ever learn to trust Jesus with his death? And will we learn to trust Jesus with our deaths? Mark doesn't tell us what happened to that guy, but he does give a beautiful little detail. Do you remember it? He says that um, before Jesus invited the man to die, he looked at him and he loved him. He looked at him and he loved him. 
and Mark doesn't say this, but I wonder if, like, after the man walked away despairing, after he walked away disheartened and sorrowful, I wonder if days later, months later, weeks later, maybe, maybe hours later, maybe minutes later, he remembered that look. And maybe he realized that Jesus actually did love him, and maybe he understood for the first time and really trusted that the invitation to die was an invitation to really live. Um, because it was an invitation to be with Jesus and to be with Jesus in his death and also to be with Jesus in his resurrection. I don't know. Because Mark doesn't tell us what happened to the rich young ruler. Unless maybe Mark does tell us what happened to him. We get this little detail in Mark, and you remember this. Um, we, we've talked about this. It's been a while. But Mark includes, like... It's such a weird detail. It's like the kind of detail you think, well, he includes it because it had to have happened because there's no other reason to put something like this in there. None of the other gospel writers include it, but we're told uh, shortly, actually, well, in chapter 14, not long before the passage we read, that um, right after all the disciples have abandoned Jesus and fled in fear, that a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And I wonder if maybe, like just maybe, maybe this is the rich young ruler because, because why? Because he couldn't get that look of love out of his mind. And so he let his hope die because it was a false hope anyway. And he got small and he went low and he sold all his possessions and he gave it all away to the poor and all he kept was that linen garment. I like that possibility that maybe Jesus' look of love led this rich young ruler away from his presumption and also called him back from his despair and helped him to embrace a humble hope. Humble hope dies, family. It's humble enough to die. And it's hopeful enough to die. And I wonder where might Jesus be inviting you to turn away from your false hopes? To surrender them? To die to them, maybe? Where is Jesus inviting you to join him in his death? Where is he inviting you to join him in his death? Humble hope is about crying, and it's about dying, and it's also about waiting. You know, today is the first Sunday of Advent, which means that uh, the global church is embracing this season of waiting and moving into it together. It's a season of longing. It's a season of lament. Um, during this season, we don't just remember and celebrate Jesus' first coming, his first advent, but we also wait for his return, his last advent, when he will fulfill all of his promises to make all things new. And right now, we live as pilgrims on the way, and humble hope is the only posture that matches that reality of being pilgrim people on the way. Fleming Rutledge writes this. She says the, hope, uh, she says the church always lives in advent. She says, we stand in a dark place, but all the faculties of the faithful are straining like the watchman who stands on the heights with his face toward the coming dawn. She says, the entire Christian life in this world is lived in Advent, in the midst of the tension between things the way they are and things the way they ought to be. See, people on the way are people who have to wait. Um, there's always the temptation in the Christian life to rush ahead to the end, 
or, or to yank the end into the present, to say we can have it all now. We can have, we can have all of the healing and all of the justice and we can have all of the goodness and we can have all the righteousness that the world is made for right here, right now. And it just, it doesn't map onto reality because we're pilgrim people. Um, we're on a journey and we, we haven't arrived yet. We've talked the past several weeks about how hopeful waiting is active. It doesn't sit around twiddling its thumbs, but rather empowered by the spirit, it just gets busy with setting up like little signs pointing to the world to come and offering little foretastes of the new creation, like right here and right now. We've said that Christian hope is not passive and quietistic. It is moving and it's active. And now I want to say yes, like yes to all of that. And sometimes hope does nothing but wait. Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And do you know what Jesus was doing at that point? Nothing. Nothing. Um, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. And when we sing that song, we just rush right into the next line, bursting forth in glorious day, as if Jesus was just hot and ready for the moment. But, you know, Scripture doesn't even talk about Jesus raising himself. Jesus doesn't burst forth from the tomb of his own volition. I mean, Jesus is dead. And dead is dead. If he's doing anything at all, he's just waiting. He is quiet. And he's passive. And he's waiting for God to raise him from the dead. On Holy Saturday, Jesus was as quiet and as passive as a corpse. And one day you will be too. Like you won't be repairing any of what's broken in the world. You won't be solving any of the world's problems and you won't be laboring for the coming of God's kingdom and you won't be contributing to the world's flourishing in any way whatsoever other than maybe as fertilizer. Death, was that, was that too much? <laughs> I'm trying to be real with you, family. <laughs> um, death means death. And even now ahead of that final death, there will be times when all we can do is wait in humble hope as we acknowledge that like, uh, we won't be the ones finally to close the gap between the way things are and the way things are supposed to be. We won't be the ones to right all wrongs and to bring the healing and justice that the world so desperately needs. Sometimes hope does nothing but wait because death means death. Humble hope waits because sometimes it's all it can do. That's all it can do. So humble hope cries and it dies and it waits. Do you see the gift of it? I mean, do you see how humble the Christian hope is? I mean, aren't all of us really hoping for what the rich young ruler was hoping for, was wanting, like was asking about, was, was curious about? Like, we want, uh, we want real life. We want abundant life. We want to know, like, how can we have how can we have God? That's what the rich young ruler wanted. And what does Jesus tell him? He says, oh, all you have to do is die. 
And it, I mean, hard in one way, but not hard at all in another way. It doesn't say all you have to do is go, like, fight an army and win or defeat your younger brother in arm wrestling. <laughs> Slay a dragon. You don't have to do that. He says, all you have to do is die. Here's how Robert Capon puts it. I love it. He says, the only ticket you need for real abundant life is death, and that's the one ticket you definitely have. He says, the world is not saved because of its repentance, its wisdom, or its goodness, and certainly not because of its stumbling efforts to become sorrier, wiser, or better. Rather, it's saved because it is a dead world and because the life of Jesus reigns out of its death. You know, in the end family, every one of us will die to ourselves in a really literal way, like one way or another, everything is going to be stripped away from us, right? Kohelet rubbed our noses in that reality over and over again. Like, you came into this world with nothing, and you will leave this world with nothing, except for one thing. The one who has gone ahead of you, he will look at you, and he will love you. Every time we gather around this table, uh, we remember that Jesus, this one who has gone ahead of us, um, is our humble hope. Um, I, I was watching some of the old Superman movies with Judah the past couple of days, and like, uh, our Savior isn't Superman. <laughs> uh, he's a human being like you and me, whose body can break and whose blood can be spilled, and he cries and he dies and he waits, and with him, you can too. So let's, let's pray, and then we'll come to the table.